So it's the last Sunday of 2020, and we're talking about the end of the world. It seems fitting. Um, this passage in Matthew is what's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus comes away from Jerusalem and meets up with his disciples privately on the Mount of Olives and speaks to them for a couple, the next couple chapters. And it deals primarily with what we call eschatology. Eschatology means the study of the end or the study of the last things. And there's, a, there's quite a bit of the Bible that is devoted to talking about how the world is going to come to its completion and this new world is going to be inaugurated by Jesus. So, um, if you're unfamiliar, the study of the end times is a pretty controversial subject. There are a lot of opinions about uh, how to understand these passages in Matthew and the book of Revelation and some of the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and I grew up learning a very specific perspective on, on this uh, part of theology, uh, and I felt really good about it. It made sense to me. But then something happened that I think is illustrated in Proverbs 18, 17, which says, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. And so what I began to do as I got older is I started to read the perspectives of other faithful Christian scholars that have different ideas about how to understand these passages. And I thought, man, those guys seem smart and that really makes sense too. And now I don't know what to think. So this morning as we start this chapter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through it the way I see it now. Um, I may change my mind. If you don't agree with me, that's okay too. You may change your mind. Um, but this is really an issue that we need to hold open-handedly because it's not something that's meant to be divisive um, because it's, it's one of those parts of Scripture that's kind of hard to understand. So we're going to dive into it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Old Testament that's going to come up on the screen today. Jesus is um, really channeling his understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures here. And so I think we're, we're going to... Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time referencing back to the prophets uh, to kind of make sense of what Jesus is talking about. But starting in verse 1, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus, for the last couple chapters, has been hinting that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, that the temple system is going to be put to an end. Even in the end of 23, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And even with all of this, his disciples are walking with him out of the temple complex and they're going, look at how awesome these buildings are, Jesus. And it's like, Jesus just like, guys, you don't get it. Do you? And so he lays it out very specifically, very straightly. Not one stone will be left here on another. This whole magnificent complex is going to be completely torn down. And I think it's important to recognize that Jesus is not angry about this. I've, I've felt before like what we're supposed to think is like, 
Jesus came, he was rejected, and so he got mad, and he said, I'm going to curse you, Jerusalem, and destroy your city. But that's not what Jesus is communicating. Just before this, I just read it, he weeped over Jerusalem. What he's saying is, I came and I taught you how to live. I taught you what it looks like to be truly human. And if you had accepted me, if you had accepted my teaching, this thing that's going to happen to you would not have happened. If we think back to the ethics of the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and the Jesus further teaching, it's just this radically subversive ethic of the kingdom. And what Jesus believes is if the nation of Israel had adopted his way of life, the violent overthrow that they're going to experience in the year 70 would not have happened. They just, it just wouldn't have happened that way. But he says it's, it's not going to happen. It, it's gonna, they're not going to follow, they're not going to turn, and they're going to be destroyed. And then in verse 3, they're, they're walking away from Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the a- end of the age? So the disciples rightly get freaked out by this. The temple's going to be destroyed. The destruction of the temple is the worst possible thing that they can imagine. This is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the place where God lives in the midst of his people. And Jesus is saying it's all going to fall apart. And so they naturally assume, okay, when's this going to happen? And they connect it to the end of the world. This must be the end of days if the temple is going to be destroyed. And I feel like we, we know what that's like. I mean, we, it's been a really rough year, and like things happen over and over and over again this year in 2020, and, and everybody thinks like, this must be the end. When the murder hornets came, it must be the end. Where's that in Ezekiel? Like, we, obviously, it's the end of the world. And this is the kind of thing that the disciples were thinking. If the temple is being destroyed, it must be the end of the world. And so they ask two questions. When will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And you might look and go, well, that sounds like three questions, the sign of your coming and the end of the age, but the Greek grammar doesn't really allow for there to be three questions. The sign of your coming and the end of the age is a single statement. And so the disciples want to know, when is the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to return? And these two questions, they're going to frame everything that Jesus says afterwards. And the way we understand what he's saying is based on how we believe he's answering these questions. Because they're asking about two different things, um, and I've got a slide here, and it's, it's, a, it's a simple timeline. The fall of Jerusalem, we know that Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 by Titus and the Roman legions, and then there's this other event, the return of Christ, hasn't happened yet, um, and the little word there, parousia, that's the Greek word that means coming. It has to do with like an official royal visit. If the Caesar was coming to your town, he would be making a parousia. So it's a special word. When is Jesus going to come back? And as we read these sections of Matthew, sometimes it's going to seem like Jesus is talking about the first event, and sometimes it's going to seem like Jesus is talking about the second event. And so, however we understand this passage, we have to understand it in a framework 
of what he's talking about. And, and I've got four options we can think through. There's probably more. The first one is that Jesus thinks that his coming, his parousia, will take place in the year 70. And he's wrong. And some scholars who don't believe in the divinity of Christ would say that Jesus thought he could, he could see the coming war, he knew there was going to be this big battle, and he is going to return then. And obviously he didn't do it, so he messed up. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Jesus is never wrong, so we're going to re reject that view. The second one is we could say that Jesus is only talking about his parousia and everything he says is far future. So we start reading what he says and in order to accept this view, we have to think the disciples asked two questions, one about the temple and one about his return, and he just ignored the first one. He just pretended like they didn't say that and he's just talking about his future return. And I, that strikes me as odd that, that he wouldn't speak to the big elephant in the room, the destruction of the temple, the thing that was causing them so much anxiety. Number three, we could, we could say that he skips around. Sometimes he's talking about AD 70, sometimes he's talking about his parousia, but he's not really indicating which is which. He just, one verse is about this and the next verse is about that. And that's possible. Jesus was often cryptic in the way he talked, but he wasn't usually cryptic when he was speaking privately to his disciples. And this is what he's doing here. He's, this is a private conversation. He usually kind of opens the eyes of his disciples by telling them things clearly. And then that brings us to the fourth option, is that Jesus talks about 70 AD first, and then his parousia second. He answers the first question first, and then he answers the second question. And this is what I think Jesus is doing in this passage. And what I think is happening is that this entire section of Scripture that we're talking about today is about the year 70. I think everything that Jesus has to say is about the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And then next week, he's going to very clearly change the subject to talking about his return. And sometimes that's kind of confusing. And we're going to see there's some things that he says that are like really weird and you think that couldn't have happened then. It sounds crazy. It must, have, it must be happening far into the future. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's using the Old Testament to speak figuratively about things that are going to happen very shortly. So, verse 4, Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains." So this could, really, this could really happen whenever, right? This is the history of human civilization. But it is true that the 30 years after Jesus' ascension were years of war and rumors of war. And there were false messiahs that came out of the woodwork in Israel and they claimed to be uh, the savior. And many of them started rebellions that led the Romans to eventually conquer the city, and there's going to be all this crazy stuff going on. And Jesus says something really important. He says, you're going to hear about all this stuff going on in your country, around the world, and don't freak out about it. See that you are not alarmed. Don't freak out. And no matter where you place these statements 
along the timeline of history, if you see this as World War I and World War II or the Cold War or the turmoil in the Middle East today or, or whatever, I think that's a really powerful word from Jesus. Don't, don't be alarmed. All this stuff is going to happen. And again, we, we've come out of this rough year, and there's all of these things that have kind of piled on over and over and over again, and, and we constantly are freaking out about the next thing that happens. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. All these things are going to take place. Moving on to verse 9, then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name, and then many will fall away, betraying one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is, again, talking about what's going to happen in the future, and I think he's still talking about what's going to happen in the near future. In the book of Acts, um, the, the idea of the, the word all the world happens quite often. I want to read you a couple examples. In Acts eleven twenty eight. Uh, he's talking about a prophet. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. The phrase the Roman world is actually the same phrase that Jesus uses here in all the world. It would have been known that all the world is all the world that we know about and understand, the Roman Empire. Acts 19.27 says the same thing. Not only do we run the risk that our businesses may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. These men in, in Acts say that Artemis is worshipped by all the world. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world, and that's exactly what we see happen in the ministry of Paul. In Acts 17.6, Paul's enemies when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And while it's easy to read these verses as this is something that hasn't happened yet because there's tribes in New Guinea or wherever that haven't heard the gospel, I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think Jesus is saying the gospel is going to go out to the known world very quickly. And what does he say? What advice does he give his people here? He says, the one who endures, endure, hold on, don't quit, and proclaim the good news. And I think, again, at the, the end of a really rough year, going into a new year looking for hope, it's, it's good counsel. Hold on. Keep on keeping on and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. 
Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For at that time there will be a great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect." Okay, so this is where Jesus is going to start dipping really heavily into the Old Testament. Jesus knows his Hebrew scriptures really, really well. And the first thing he says is he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, this comes from Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9, Daniel is prophesying about a king, a ruler that's going to come in the future that we can look back and identify as a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a Greek ruler that uh, lived in the second century, about 200 years before Jesus, second century. BC, and he um, attacked Israel, and he uh, took over the temple, and he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig there, and he completely desecrated God's temple. And the Jewish people, they know this. They know that the abomination of desolation is this massive desecration of God's temple. And Jesus says, when you see that happen again, You guys need to run. Get out of town. And what happens just a few years after Jesus says this, leading up to the year 70 AD, is the temple continues to get defiled. The emperor Caligula wanted to set up a statue of himself in the Jewish temple, but he was assassinated before he got it done. The Roman legions marched into Jerusalem and set up their standards in the temple, the, uh, the, the pagan gods that they worshiped. Uh, the actual, the Jewish zealots, the freedom fighters in Israel, they took the temple at one point and uh, murdered a bunch of people. And so there was blood spilled everywhere all over the temple. And so at this point in history, from about AD 66 to AD 70, there are these constant desecrations of the temple. And Jesus says, when you see this happen, you need to leave. And what we read from history is the Christians did When these things started to happen in Jerusalem, the Christians left town. The Jewish people didn't, and many, many, uh, well, the Christians were mostly Jewish people too, but the non-Christian Jewish people didn't. They, They stayed, and many, many, many of them were killed. But by and large, the Christian population of Jerusalem left town, and they were saved because they followed Jesus' advice. But then it says something weird, that the kind of thing that happens in verse 21 hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. And that sure sounds to me like end of the world language, right? But I think Jesus is doing something really interesting here. I think he's using a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew saying. I want to give you a couple examples of it. Ezekiel 5, 8 through 10. Ezekiel writes, therefore, this is what the Lord God says, see, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments within you in the sight of the nations because of all your detestable practices. I will do to you what I have never done before and what I will never do again. As a result, fathers will eat their sons within Jerusalem and sons will eat their fathers and I will execute judgments against you and scatter all your survivors in every direction of the wind." Ezekiel is talking about the Babylonian Empire coming and destroying Israel in 586 BC. So the language he's using, he says, this terrible thing's going to happen and nothing like it's happened before and nothing like it will ever happen again. But that's the same thing that Jesus says here. 
Here's another example in 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6. The author writes, Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. But then a few chapters later in 2 Kings, we read this. In addition, Josiah, a different king, eradicated the mediums, the spiritists, household idols, images, and all the abhorrent things that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. And he did this in order to carry out the words of the law that were written in the book of the priest Hilkiah found in the Lord's temple. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength according to the law of Moses. And there was no one like, and no one like him arose after him. So in the same book, 2 Kings, the same author gives the same like ultimate compliment to two different guys. Nobody's ever been as awesome as Hezekiah, and nobody ever afterwards was as awesome as Hezekiah. But then after that, nobody's ever been as awesome as Josiah, and nobody will ever be as awesome as Josiah in the future. Because what they're doing is they're using a Hebrew idiom of like the bestest, right? And I, I feel like we understand this in other contexts. My daughter, Nora, one of the things she loves to say is, this is the best day ever. So, hey, Nora, we're going on vacation. We're going to go to the coast. We're going to go to the beach. This is the best day ever. Hey, Nora, it's your birthday. We're going to have a princess birthday party. Nora, this is the best day ever. Hey, Nora, we're going to have pancakes for breakfast. This is the best day ever, right? So, it's not that, like, she's lining up all the days and making a hierarchy of them. She's just thrilled about what's happening now. And I think that what the, this language is communicating in the case of the kings is Hezekiah and Josiah, they were great kings. And in the case of the judgment, this is a really bad thing. Jesus is directly quoting the kind of language that is used when Israel is judged in the past. So then we move on. Verse 23, if anyone tells you then, see, here is the Messiah, or over there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. And, or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. He says again, there's going to be false teachers. And there's always false teachers and false saviors when bad things are happening. Whenever there's uh, destruction or war or natural disaster or societal change, there's always going to be people that are going to use that to their advantage to gain a following. And Jesus says, if somebody's all like, he's living out in the wilderness or he's, he's in the basement of this house, don't believe them. When I return, the, the parousia, that word, the coming of the Son of Man, everyone will see it. There will be no question when Jesus returns. That's this vulture thing. The, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. It will be obvious. When you see a bunch of birds around a body, you know what's going on. There's not going to be any guesswork involved. Verse 29. 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And so now we go, he must be talking about the far future here. There can't, how in the world could he still be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, again, I think Jesus knows his Old Testament, and he is quoting the prophets. I've got a, a long passage in Isaiah I want to read you. Isaiah 13 starts like this. A pronouncement against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amot, saw. Lift up a banner on a barren mountain, call out to them, signal with your hand and they will go through the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. Yes, I have called my warriors who celebrate my triumph to execute my wrath. Listen, a commotion on the mountains like that of a mighty people. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations being gathered together. The Lord of armies is mobilizing an army for war. They are coming from a distant land from the farthest horizon, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the days of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak and every man will lose heart. They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them and they will be in anguish like like a woman in labor, they will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine." Isaiah is speaking against the nation of Babylon, and if you keep reading in Isaiah 13, he names this army that Yahweh is raising up, and it's the Medo-Persian army. It's the empire of the Medes and the Persians that at that point in history destroyed Babylon. And yet the language he uses makes it sound a lot more cosmic than what we saw happen. And I, that makes sense according to what I believe about the world, because I believe that there are cosmic powers fighting battles out in the world, and there are nations are overseen by spiritual beings. And so, to fight against Babylon is a real spiritual battle, and Isaiah indicates that by using cosmic language to talk about the destruction. This happens all the time. Uh, here's another example, Ezekiel 32 Ezekiel's talking about Pharaoh. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you and will bring darkness on the land. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This is a judgment that was carried out by Babylon against Egypt. And I think Jesus is doing a really powerful thing here. He's, he's saying this destruction of the holy city, your, your, your prized possession, well, Jerusalem has become like Babylon. Jerusalem has become like Egypt. Those foreign powers that, that oppressed you, that hated you, you've become just like them. And the judgment of God is coming on you now, just like they ca it came on them. And again, I think... I think we recognize this when we're not in the Bible. Um, 
modern songwriting does this a lot. I found a great one by Kenny Rogers. He writes, so sweep away the sand and dry the ocean and just pack the moon and stars up in a cardboard box and stop the clock from chiming, block the sun from shining, paint the sky a deeper shade of blue because my world's over without you. And do we think that Kenny is, is prophesying the destruction of the natural order? No, we think that he's heartbroken at the loss of love and he's using metaphor to explain how bad it is. If you have ever interacted with someone with a cancer diagnosis and they use the term, we got earth-shattering news. Did the earth really break apart when that phone call came in? No, it's a metaphor of something really bad happening. And I, I think because Jesus knows his Bible well and he's virtually quoting from the prophets, I think that's what he's trying to get his audience to understand, that the Jer Jerusalem is being destroyed because you have become like Babylon. But then he says in Verse 30, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And this is where it gets a little confusing. But again, Jesus is talking about Old Testament stuff. The Son of Man is his favorite title for himself, and he gets it from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, in the scene in Daniel... Daniel sees this one that looks like the Son of Man, and he's coming. Where is he coming to? He's coming up to the throne of God. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 conquers the enemies and then ascends to the right hand of the Father. He's not descending to earth, and I think that's important because in verse 30 of Matthew, when he says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that word coming, that's not the word parousia. That's not the royal visit that Jesus has been talking about. It's a different word. And he's quoting Daniel 7, where coming is coming up to heaven. This is language about his ascension. The Son of Man is coming up to heaven, not down to earth. Now, admittedly, there's some confusing stuff going on here. He will send out his angels. What does that mean? He will gather his elect. What does that mean? Some scholars would say that this is a colorful way of talking about the proclamation of the gospel. All in all, we can't figure everything out. But a big part of this passage that makes me think that he's still not talking about his return is the passage that he's quoting specifically talks about him coming up to heaven and not down to earth. And then verse 32, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. 
I tell you, the, the, the truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, I, I grew up learning that this, this example of the fig tree had to do with the modern nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was destroyed in 70 AD, and it stayed destroyed virtually until 1948 when um, various European nations who were really um, honestly guilty about the Holocaust and not doing anything to stop it created some space in the traditional site of the Holy Land for a new nation to be reborn called Israel. And I've been taught that that's, that's the blossoming of the fig tree, and then from that point forward, it will be a generation before Jesus returns. And that sounds, that's a, that's a really compelling uh, vision of how to understand this passage, but there's a couple things that make me feel like it's not the best way to read it. The first one is, it's, it's really hard grammatically to make that case, that Jesus is talking about something that far off into the future, something that his original audience wouldn't have had any understanding of. He says that this generation will certainly not pass away. And, and so in order to make that work, we have, to, we have to say the generation of people that saw Israel born in 1948. Typically, a generation in Scripture is 40 years. And so if you were around at the time, you may have heard all, about all the excitement in 1988 that Jesus is going to come back this year because it's been 40 years from 1948. And that didn't happen. And so then, well, maybe, maybe a generation is 50 years, and then it was 1998, and then maybe a generation is 100 years, but usually a generation is 40 years, and 38 years after Jesus said this, Jerusalem was destroyed. It makes a lot more sense to me that Jesus is talking about the generation of people that he's speaking to, because every single other time, and you can look this up. In Matthew, when Jesus says this generation, he's talking about the people in the room. And so for him to use the same language, this generation, and be talking about people that, are, that won't be born for thousands of years seems a little weird. I think what Jesus is still talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. He's still answering the first question. He's still saying, when you see stuff get crazy, you know it's going to happen soon. And in... AD 66, it started a year of what's called the Jewish, years of the Jewish wars, a four-year period where rebellions continued to break out year after year, and false messiahs gathered militias and attacked Roman garrisons, and finally the Caesar just said, I've had enough, and they laid siege to the city, and they destroyed it, and they burned the temple to the ground. And I think Jesus is still warning the people, his disciples, that this is going to happen and you need to be aware of it and you need to get out of town when it does. I think this whole section is Jesus answering the first question about the destruction of the temple. Because then, and we won't get very far, but in verse 36, he says, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. 
I think he abruptly and clearly changes subject there and moves on in verse 36 to answering the second question. When are you going to return? When is going to be the end of the age? And through the end of 24 and all of chapter 25, Jesus is going to do this extended teaching on what it's going to look like when the Son of Man returns in glory. So what do we do If Jesus is issuing a warning to his disciples about a political military disaster that happened a long time ago, what do we do with that? I think Jesus has three important things to say about being a disciple of Christ when life is hard, when you're entering a dark period in your life. And I've had many conversations over the last year about what what if the country goes this way? What if our freedoms are curtailed? What if fill-in-the-blank happens? What if things get bad for us? We've lived in a nation of just unparalleled prosperity for generations, and what if that changes? What do we do? Well, what does Jesus say? First of all, he says, don't be alarmed. God is in control. Don't be afraid. And I know it's easy to say that. It's harder to do it because fear just kind of comes upon you. But some of us really need to grow in this area. Some of us are really genuinely freaked out about fill in the blank. And whatever it is, for some of us, it's sin. And I know we don't like to talk about that as, as sin, but sometimes fear is sin. It's, it's failure to trust in God for who you are and what you have and what your needs are. And if your life is, is just constantly anxiety over whatever your particular issue is, you need to take that to the cross. You need to give that to Jesus and say, God, you are in control. And no matter what happens, I am yours. The second thing Jesus says, he says, hold on, endure. Don't give up on the way of Jesus. I felt several times this year, like, man, should I just quit? Like, this is, this year is awful. Like, I don't even know why I try anymore. But that's easy, right? It's easy to give up sometimes. If you're feeling that way, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount this week. Go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Remind yourself of what kind of people we are called by Jesus to be and empowered by His Holy Spirit to be. And then three, He says, proclaim the good news. Several times in this passage, He says, the good news of the kingdom is going to go out everywhere. The only thing that's going to pull us out of whatever mess we seem to be nosediving into is the gospel. Make a habit of proclaiming it to yourself. Get up in the morning and remind yourself of who you are in Christ, of how He has forgiven you of your sin, and He has saved you from death, and He has made you new. And then tell it to everybody that's going to listen to you. When the world is falling apart around us, that's the time that the good news about Jesus shines the brightest. And so we, if, if it's really true that, that things are going sideways in our country, in our world, in our state, in our city, then now is the time to be bold about the gospel. Now is the time to give people hope that can't be found in government and um, society and Instagram. So, I know that was a lot. We could have spent weeks in that passage, and I flew through it in 30 minutes. Um, 
Are there problems with the way I explain that? Absolutely. Uh, and and if, you, if you have a different view, I'm sure you've, you've got them all in your mind of like, well, this doesn't make sense, that, that, and I get it. Prophecy is hard. Whatever view you take of what Jesus is saying here, there are going to be problems that you have to wrestle with. Um, if you hold that Jesus is speaking primarily about a date far in the future in this section of the text, there are questions that don't make sense. If you hold, like I just went through, that he's talking about 70 AD, there are things that don't quite make sense. And that's okay. I think it's worth it to continue to study, to continue to learn, to continue to grow, to talk about those things together, if that's your things. I know some of you don't care about prophecy at all, but for those of us that do. But regardless if these are things that Jesus is warning his first century followers about or things that he's warning his last days followers about, he's still asking us to be committed. He's still asking us to rest in his peace. And he's still asking us to proclaim the gospel to everyone we know. So we're going to take communion as we always do. We're, this is... This is preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? This is reminding ourselves that we are a blood-bought people. Jesus' broken body and shed blood is represented by the cup and the juice. These are the things that adopt us into the kingdom of heaven. This is our identity. This is, this is who we are. More than any other identity that our culture wants to place on us, our primary identity is we are Jesus' people. And in, when the world is falling apart around us, Jesus still sits on the throne. The Son of Man has come up to the Ancient of Days, and He is ruling and reigning on the throne of God. And we are called to live as His people in a time that is potentially hard. And it would be my prayer that that, that would give us hope, even when our circumstances are rocky, that Jesus is on the throne, and Jesus is going to return to make all things right. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.